Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Physical Performance at Kubota Spears, Ollie Richardson. This episode of the Pacing Performance Podcast is sponsored by SimplyFaster.com and that's spelled S-I-M-P-L-I Faster.com. So alongside the free lap timing systems, SimplyFaster.com currently holds the eccentric K-Box. So if you haven't heard of the K-Box, it's a new product that uses flywheel technology to allow higher velocity eccentric overload. So I saw the K-Box for the first time when Mike Young from the US brought a couple over for one of his workshops in Gloucester. So off the back of that, I was really keen to use one and I actually got my hands on one and was able to spend a couple of hours playing around with lots of different exercises and getting used to the K-Box. So from personal experience, getting out of the bottom of the squat, powering up and having the K-Box pull you through the floor on the way down is absolutely incredible. So basically, the harder you go on the concentric portion of the lift, the more it's going to give you on the eccentric. So if you're going to go for it, you're going to get pulled through the floor. At simplyfaster.com, there's also a great blog from Frederick, who is one of the co-owners of Eccentric, so you can learn more about the K-Box there. So if you are interested in getting a K-Box, get to simplyfaster.com, so that's S-I-M-P-L-I, faster.com, and get a K-Box for yourself. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Vald Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. So the Nordboard isn't available until December 2015, but if you do want any more information, you can go over to valdperformance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. So today we've got Ollie Richardson on the phone. So there's been a little bit of a demand for someone who's involved in in mixed martial arts. So I wanted to combine that with someone who was involved in performance sport as well. So we've got Ollie on and he is the head of physical performance at Kubota Spears in Japan, as I said in the the intro. But he also has a, a very keen interest and knowledge into mixed martial arts. So it's a really interesting chat with Ollie because we discuss all things mixed martial arts and how that kind of combines with his role in rugby and how he's brought the skills learned from his time in with mixed martial artists and brought that into the rugby settings. That's really interesting. So we look at conditioning for a fighter. We look at translating training techniques from mixed martial arts to other sports, as I mentioned. Uh, we look at strength training for a fighter and we discuss culture, uh, which is a really interesting uh, segment of the, of the podcast. Uh, really interesting to me just how it differs between the two, uh, the two sports. So I'll keep this intro nice and short, 
But I just I do want to uh, bring to your attention the webinar series. So we've got number two coming up, which is really exciting, and it's going to be with Ian McKeel from Port Adelaide, and he's the head of athletic development. So he came on the podcast quite a few episodes ago um, and it was really really interesting so I've been keeping in touch with Ian and he's decided to go ahead with doing the number two uh, webinar so if you are interested go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Ian and you can find out more information on what Ian's going to deliver on the webinar and you can register uh, and go go through the, uh, the process there really really excited because I spoke to Ian at length on what he's going to deliver uh, and it looks really really cool so apologies for my croaky throat it's half past five in the morning got a bit of traveling to do so I had to get this intro in early but I will leave you with Ollie Richardson hope you enjoy the episode let me know what you think and I'll, I'll speak to you soon Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacing Performance Podcast. So today I've got Ollie Richardson, who is the Head of Performance at Kubota Spears in Tokyo. So welcome to the podcast, Ollie. Hey, thanks Rob, thanks for having me on. Uh, probably just first off want to say, you know, th- thanks for having me on and uh, it's a real privilege to be on here. I've, had a, I've been following your podcast and the, you know, the calibre of people you've managed to, to get on here and, and share their knowledge with the listeners is, uh, you know, commendable on your part and exciting for, for all of us in this field. Cool. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. So do you want to um, give us a little bit of background on, on yourself, your education and what you're currently doing? Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll start from where we're at now. So uh, as you introed me, um, so I'm currently heading up the performance department for uh, Kubota Spears in, in, in Tokyo. Uh, f- for guys who don't um, know much about rugby in, in Japan, uh, the the setup over here is called the Top League and um, the constituents of that Top League are big um, corporations and, and companies in Japan. So uh, there's quite a few companies that, that have uh, rugby teams as, the, as their kind of showpiece for the company. And um, Kubota is one of those, and, and we compete against people like Panasonic, uh, um, Toshiba, uh, Coca-Cola, and p- people like that. Um, so it, it's it's quite a it's quite a big deal for the companies, and it's a, it's a nice showpiece for them, and uh, it's a very healthy healthy competition uh, because they recruit worldwide, and that, that they bring in um, some really high caliber players to play alongside their company employees who make up the rest of the team. So that's where that's where I'm at at the minute. Um, I, I've been here since April, and uh, I'm really really enjoying my time so far in Tokyo and Japan as a whole. Um, previous to that, so I was heading up uh, Queensland Reds um, performance department for uh, for t- for two seasons um, over in Brisbane, um, which is an amazing place, Ama- amazing club, amazing place, and uh, I, again a really uh, really interesting. And um, uh, and uh, really good experience for me. Before that, before before I uh, before I was heading up the department, um, I, I worked for two seasons before that at the same club, so at the Reds as the as the rehab and uh, kind of reintegration manager um, for their senior team. 
um, I, I managed to get that, that role. Uh, it's it kind of two, two stages. Um, D- Damien Marsh, who was the head of performance, and Ewan McKenzie, who was the head coach at the time at the Reds, um, they were looking to recruit. And I, I'd worked with Dean Benton, who'd also worked with Damien. And uh, via that connection, we, uh, we got put together. We had a few Skype chats and uh, a formal interview and then uh, um, they, they recruited me and brought me over um, to, to do that job for them. Um, so, so what happened before that? Um, so, so basically, so that, that's, the, uh, that's what I've been doing for the last kind of four or five years. Before that, I, I was at Leicester Tigers um, in, in the UK doing a similar sort of job obviously a more a junior role i started out at, at tigers on an internship um in 2004 2005 and um basically just just uh committed to them committed to their program and just worked as hard as i could and through i, I guess partly my endeavor and a bit of luck along the way people moved on from that performance department and i managed to kind of slowly work my work my way up um at that club um i mean i mean leicester leicester was it's an it's an amazing place it's an amazing team um i mean they've been there or thereabouts in rugby in the european scene for for years and and their drive ambition and consistency um is is quite an incredible thing to be part of it uh it's it's it really molded me um going forward about about what I believed it took to, to to win at things, so it was it was a really good solid grounding for me. Um, again, I was pretty lucky during, during my time during my time at Leicester. Um, we'd had a discussion as a performance department that we wanted to look at uh, wrestling and some kind of combat sports to see what we could integrate into uh, the training for the for the rugby team. And I kind of took it upon myself, you know, the, the best way to, to work out what's going to work and what's not going to work is to, is to get involved in a, a sport, a, a combat sport. So around 2006, 2007, I, I went and um, just started training with um, uh, Leicester Shoot Fighters. So it's a, an MMA gym run by Nathan Leverton in Leicester, which is, uh, you know, a, a pretty renowned uh, mixed martial arts gym. And uh, and I, I specifically went there just to learn some skills, un- understand wrestling, understand mani- uh, body manipulation, and understand how I could try and transfer that across to to the guys at Tigers. Um, and that kind of organically um, presented must presented me with with a couple of uh, opportunities. So while while I was training, I, I met um, two professional fighters, Jim Warhead and Andre Winner. We started chatting. I started training with them. Um, I started looking at what they were doing training-wise, and uh, and then eventually we started working together. And then I met uh, Dan Hardy, Dean Amersinger, um, and, and basically from then I, I kind of helped them from an S and C point of view and also a program management point of view. Um, and that's kind of how I got an avenue into into mixed martial arts and preparing athletes for MMA. So is that still continuing now through your uh, alongside your, your current role? 
No, no, it's not not my current role in Japan. No, so I, I still speak to um, I still speak to a lot of those guys. I'm, I'm very close to Dean and Dan, and um, we 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 talk a lot about um, about where the sport's going and about uh, physical preparation for it. And Dean Amasinghe is um, running a gym down in Windsor, and um, a lot of the principles we talk about, you know, he's right on he's right on the coal face implementing them. And, um, and and kind of continuing our work through. So what dif- what were the main differences across the, the in the kind of cultures of of where you were working kind of full time in your rugby setting to down at the gym with the MMA guys? Uh, yeah, I mean it was quite stark to, to, to be fair. So um, I, I think I still think both sports uh, can learn a lot from each other although the things that MMA can learn from from rugby and the professional setup of rugby I, I do think are, are developing uh, within that sport already so back in 2006-7 when I when I first met that fight group uh, their, their training was basically in in disarray that they trained harder than I'd ever seen anyone train but it was it was it was kind of all over the place. So one of the big things I, I, I brought to them was just some structure in their training, just their training week, um, the, the intensity of their sessions, the volume of their sessions, uh, and how, how to bring some consistency to, to their training and uh, and have, actually have a day off once in a while and actually let, let themselves recover, which they, were, which they weren't great at. And that the mentality of those combat guys is that if they're resting and their opponents are not resting, then you know their opponents are, are at an advantage at that stage. And like I said, I think things are changing. You know, sport, sports science and, and strength conditioning program management, um, it, it's, it's pretty evident that they have been integrated into MMA and MMA training is changing quite rapidly, I think. Um, I mean, you, you only... Uh, have to look. I mean, you only ever get snippets of uh, behind-the-scenes type programs, but watching Conor McGregor and his his build-up into the Chad Mendes fight, you know, there's there's, there's clearly um, a lot of structure. There's clearly some very very smart people behind uh, what he's doing, and th- that's what made me think that you know th- things have caught things have caught up now, and uh, there seems to be a lot more structure in in, uh, in the sport of MMA. So there's always been a, a big kind of popularity rise in MMA over the last couple of years. So wh- why do you think that is? Why, why have people in kind of more traditional sports looking at that as a as the kind of almost like a pinnacle of physical preparation? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think I, I do think the competition of MMA, especially at the, the pointy end, nothing can really come that close. To MMA, it's the pinnacle of of what competition is. You know, there's two people, there's no one else in there. Everything is on the line. Everybody is watching. If you've if you've missed a half step or you've took a short, bit, you 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 know you're gonna get you're gonna get found out. There isn't 14 other people that can pick up the slack for you. Um, you are literally in the spotlight. I, I think that appeals to a lot of people, and they they see that and they understand that it's the ultimate gladiatorial gladiatorial sport. Um, now, whether what goes into that, into making that performance happen, is um, something we should aspire to or not, it, it is a bit different. Like I say, I think things are getting a lot better. But but in 
more established sports like, for instance, the AFL or, you know, Super Rugby or, or, or Premiership Rugby, the structures, the processes of training, you know, that, that, that they are, they're very high end. You know, that is something that, that people should also be looking at and thinking, well, you know, you know what, that, you know, that is producing results uh, week in, week out in, in a competition that has been around for a long time. And um, it's very, very competitive in nature. So when you went into these guys, this this fight group, when you were you kind of training with them to get an insight into what they were doing, what did the training look like? Uh, well, well, you know, anyone who most people, I guess, now would know the constituents of uh, of MMA, but but in those earlier days when I started getting involved. It, it wasn't necessarily um, governed by a head coach. So there was a striking coach who did his bit. There was a grappling coach who did his bit. I was doing my S&C bit. And then, uh, you know, there's a wrestling coach doing his bit. And the uh, and how that was all tailored, tailored and streamlined uh, pro- probably wasn't so good in the earlier days. Um, you know, in, in, co- in contrast, in the professional rugby teams, you know, a- a- every session – uh, is done in relation to another session. It's all coming under one kind of periodized uh, plan that is, that is looking to get the team to to a certain point in a certain amount of time. Um, so, so it was kind of they, they, like I said before, they train uh, they train very hard. Uh, it, I, I just felt it just needed a little bit more guidance in terms of uh, balancing their week and. Um, and, and trying to get the best out of each of those sessions rather than every session uh, at 100 miles an hour um, and lacking a little bit of quality and, and, and lacking a bit of contrast in the days and the weeks and the, and the months and then the, the, the camp cycles. So you just want to talk to us a little bit about your kind of role and how you, how you made that happen and how you were as a practitioner kind of adding to what they were currently doing? Uh, with the with the MMA group. with the MMA guys, yeah, um, yeah. So, look, it, 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 it's it was difficult coming in as an outsider who wasn't in the sport, but I also think that was a, a good thing too. So it's a bit of a, a double sided coin because um, you know pe- people don't necessarily like change as a, as a general rule, and uh, without without being too uh, broad. Um, in general, fight, fight or combat coaches like the way they did stuff. This is the way we do stuff in this sport. This is, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. Um, so I kind of guess uh, when, when I went into that sport, I, I was reasonably, um, I, I was uh, reasonable, reasonably confident I could make a difference. And if you just given time, you know, the coaches and the and the, and the fight group would would see and understand that. But by changing a few things around and actually resting once in a while, and you know, uh, training at a very very high intensity, but keeping the volume low, or training at a high volume and keeping the intensity low, you know, working on that inverse relationship between the two things. Um, but I, but I also was very uh, conscious that I didn't want to step on any toes, upset the technical coaches who, you know, are very important, are very important people in in a fighter's life. Um, so. Realistically, most most of the input I had on that fight group initially was taking the kind of structures and processes that we used at, 
tigers and just modifying them slightly and, and bringing them into the MMA world. Um, and uh, you know, after after a short transitional time, um, the fighters and the coaches that they 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 came on board. They they understood. We, we talked regularly, and it was a learning process for me as well. Like. I didn't jump into MMA and have all the answers, but what I did have was some examples of how we do it from a, um, a professional sport and a professional setup. Uh, and we just amalgamated the two things, the two ideas. Um, it was it was very much a, t- a to and fro learning experience for all of us. And um, and you know we 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 did some really good things. We did some um, we progressed that kind of program and. Uh, and still now, those guys still use some of the concepts we were using using back then. Sounds good. So, when it comes to a conditioning point of view for the for the guys that you were working with at that time, what what does that look like? What does the conditioning side of things look like? So, so for me, across, I guess across all sports, and you know, the longer I'm in this game, the probably the less black and white um, I become. But in general. I, I think strength training is a is a general construct, but I, I believe work past in conditioning is, is very 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 specific. So um, a, a lot of what we a lot of what we did uh, in, in my mind, and, and I'm a kind of concepts like I like a concept, so that so the content of those concepts may change over time, but the, the concept is probably still the same. Uh, and what we used to talk about is that we need to condition at or above fight intensity. So by the time that you come to fight night, the only thing you have to worry about is managing your adrenaline and managing getting punched and kicked in the face and following your game plan. So in terms of in terms of um, how hard it's going to be and the the, the um, how much taxing how taxing it's going to be on a system, we will have dealt with that already consistently over however long we we've been together. So all you need to worry about are these things on on fight night, um, and I, I, I think and the, and the feedback from the fight group is is they they liked that concept they understood that concept it was something they felt they could apply to to fight night something they it gave them confidence walking in there and um, and yeah it, I mean it's 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 it's, it's very difficult with, without without metrics as as such to judge you know. Before we before we started this concept, we were this fit, and when we finished this concept, we were this fit um, because that, that's 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 just not MMA and that's just not practical. But uh, subjectively, um, a, a lot of fighters a really liked the idea, and b always felt that come fight night, they they were happy to go three five minute rounds as fast as they can, or five five minute rounds in in championship fights if that's what it took. So when you talk about specificity and that that term used in conduction with with conditioning when it comes to training through the week or through the months how specific are you getting with your conditioning or is it is it move from kind of general to specific like you would do in other sports yeah exactly moving from general to specific the only well not frustration but the only thing at that time you kind of had to deal with is that you just you just seemed to bounce from camp to camp to camp, so there wasn't there wasn't much time for a nice general prep block where you could just take them away from their sport, de- develop some central qualities, and then integrate that back in. So, um, in theory, it would it was nice to go from general to specific, but very rarely did we have a nice 
a legitimate block where we could do some general uh, general conditioning and, and try and make a change that way. Um, and and as most as most combat sports uh, participants, once you'd finished once you'd finished the count, once you'd fought, there was a kind of uh, block where no one really knew where anyone was, and uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was an enforced off season. And uh, by the time you know, by the time that was done. It, it was almost time for camp again. So when we did have time, we did do some general stuff. We did, um, you know, we did some much, much less specific stuff. But most of the time, we, we tended to bounce from camp to camp to camp. I mean, again, that that, that seems to be changing. And I think uh, George St. Pierre was probably at the forefront of that. You know, he, he's talked in the media quite a lot about how he, it's camps are camps. But once camp's finished, he, he he's he's always training. So it's his it's his lifestyle now, and I, I uh, you know, I'm not involved as closely with the sport anymore. But from what I see and people I talk to, that seems to be more of the norm now. Is that it, it, it's you know it's a it's a fifty week a year job, and you might have a holiday for a couple of a uh, couple of weeks here and there. But when when you're outside of camp, and I completely agree, is that then's a time where you can actually develop some qualities technical or tactical or, or physical qualities you can develop those qualities without having to worry about constantly drilling for a game plan constantly uh, trying to improve for this, for this one uh, this one point in time so on the flip side of that how, what have you taken away from MMA that now influences your practice in rugby or at the time did influence your practice in rugby so my, I so as a lot of things seem to be, it, it, it's, it was a bit cyclical. So when I first got in, I was like, oh, you know, I can use this, I can use that, I can use that. But after I had time to kind of incubate um, some of the ideas and uh, speak to speak to people and, um, and try some stuff, I've kind of gone almost, not quite, but almost a full circle. So the, the, the main difference I find, so the, the wrestling and the grappling components of MMA, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of setting stuff up. There's a lot of uh, tricking people into things, uh, and obviously there's a lot of physical manipulation in that. But I, I feel like it's done over a time span that is almost um, not applicable to, to rugby. So the positions that you could get into in rugby, where, where wrestling or grappling would be uh, um, um, of benefit, they're over in it. If you're still doing it in two seconds, it's, it's gone. It, it's too late. You've, you've got the one or two seconds to to clean a rock or you got one or two seconds to manipulate someone out, out of position and then it's over. Um, so there's no setup. There's, there's no, um, there's no fakes. There's no, there's no trapping people into things. Um, it's a very, very explosive, very, very short, um, uh, uh, physical endeavor. Um, there's, there's a couple of people who've kind of took, took this on. We're working with a guy called Brett O'Farrell who, um, who runs tackle tech. Uh, so he used to play for Melbourne Storm, and he's also a black belt in, in BJJ. Um, and he, he's really he's really carved out this niche for himself, where he's obviously obviously high level experience in, in both sports, but he's amalgamated the two and just got rid of stuff that isn't applicable. Um, so so he he uh, he consults to us at Kubota, and he comes over two or three times a year and um he, he's basically done what I, what i was kind of thinking he's took away all that stuff that you're just not going to have time to do and he's refined it down to three or four three or four skills and then five or six um 
specific strengthening kind of on-field drills that, that he uses uh, for the tackle area and the breakdown area and general physical manipulation. So where, where in the program does this fit? So in a week at your place in, in Tokyo, so you're leading up to a game on Saturday, where does this fit into your program? Yeah, okay, so we have, um, we have, uh, and this year especially, we've, we've, we don't start uh, the proper top league for another month, and we've been in training uh, since April. So we've had an incredible uh, prep period and during that time, we've we we can we've used it as and when we feel we need to. So uh, uh, Brett's come in and he, he's he's done some stuff. We've um, kept those drills when he's gone back to Australia, and we've repped that uh, through each week, twice a week, normally on our Tuesday and Thursday. Um, and then when he comes back, he uh, he, he continues w- with his work with them, and, and we repeat the process. Now we're getting a bit closer to the season. Um, because we've had so much time, <coughs> excuse me. Because we've had so much time with them, um, that that'll <coughs> that'll be reduced to to a Tuesday only. So, on a Monday we we have a we have a quite light uh, recovery day. On a Tuesday we have a, we have our heaviest day, which always includes um, a block of contact. Uh, so some live some live contact and some uh, and some drills that. Um, that are full contact and are based around that tackle area and the tackle skills that we, we've been working on for such a long amount of time. So you, you mentioned right at the start that the Kubota guys are actually employees of the company. How does that work around with the schedule? Yeah, right. So we have we have um, 10 or 11 full-time pros. So they, they have a, a slightly different schedule, but the rest of the team, they... Um, they have a requirement to the company. So on a Monday morning, uh, all day Wednesday, and uh, either a Thursday morning or a Thursday afternoon, depending uh, the opposite that we want to train, um, they they have to go and do they have to go and do whatever their job is. So some guys will be uh, in the Kubota warehouse, some guys will be in the head office um, doing an office job and what have you. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's difficult for them. Uh, but it's definitely manageable. It's definitely manageable. Manageable. We we, um, we get everything we want to do done. We just have to be a little bit smart about where we put it in the program, and um, and obviously be uh, conscious of their requirements. So some guys are having to travel to and from uh, to and from Tokyo to to Kubota, which is you know forty five minutes. Um, uh, some guys are in the warehouse working. But what what one thing I say is. Uh, the 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 guy the guys that work they they are incredibly uh, diligent with their physical maintenance. So we we have a physical maintenance or physical preparation period during the day, um, which is something something I did at the Reds and something I brought in here, where I've I've really I really want to put it back on the athletes. I really want them to not be dependent on the coaching staff and the physio staff for their for their physical preparation. So they have forty five minutes. If if we we have some some general tests, some knee to wall, some sit and reach, some hip flexor tests. Um, if they are outside of what is their their normal range, well, it's on them to do something about it before they come to the physios or, bec- or before they come to the staff. If they can't do something about it, then of course we need to be in the loop and of course we, we need to know about it and we can make decisions about 
whether they train, whether a modified training, or whether we think we can push them through and, and it's full training. But the emphasis is on them. You know, they have to be responsible responsible for their um, their own status uh, and where they're at. It, it's it's a bugbear of mine. Is co- is coach dependency? Is is just walking in the morning, pointing pointing at hip flexion, expecting the physio <laughs> to do something about it. So they will know that the test, they will know the, their norms and they just get on with it. If anything needs to be flagged up, they tell you then. And, and obviously staff are around. Yeah. Uh, and we have some, we have fixed protocols for um, mobilization, stabilization and what have you. Um, but, but I'm not going to stand in there and holding 52 people's hands uh, just to make, you know, make, make sure they're all right because they're a little bit tight because they've been sat on the train for 45 minutes. You know, they're, they're adults and this is an adult environment and, and, you know, athletes need to take responsibility for themselves. So just moving on a little bit, um, I had Rick Moylan on who was Ricky Hatton's coach uh, a couple of years ago and he spoke about the kind of culture when it comes to strength training with with fighters. How What's your experience of integrating kind of a, a more comprehensive strength program with, with the guys uh, and mixed, ma- mixed martial artists? Yeah, so with the Roughhouse group, which was the, the, the pro MMA team, it was a little bit of a hard sell. Um, but I, I, I just, I do believe it, it is a fundamental across all sports. So, so we know that increasing max strength has an impact on all the other physical qualities, all the way down to endurance. So, to not ha- to not address that in a program has to limit that pro- has to limit that athlete at some stage. And uh, and um, I I think it you know that crosses all sports and obviously depending on the sport depends on how much time you dedicate to to each of the physical qualities but you know we know and even even recently you know Twitter seems to have become my uh, uh, looking glass over over the industry of of S and C there's there's um, some amazing information and a plethora of opinion but also now research papers and review papers and reviews of conferences that is accessible to everyone now and um over the last couple of months you know we we still keep coming back to there has to be a max strength thread um to your programming you know and it's something that even you know back when i i started out um people were saying it back then and and people are saying it back uh, are still saying it now and um it was, although it was a difficult sell to start with, I think uh, once they kind of committed to I- increasing their max strength, also, you know, and, and all the things that go along with that, they felt the benefit. And then it it wasn't such um, it wasn't such a hard sell. It was still sometimes a hard sell to the coaches because that they were a generation before who, who you know, uh, everyone will always always say oh you know strength training makes you slow and and what have you even though obviously we know that that not to be true um so it's a little bit harder sell to those guys but same as everything if someone feels a benefit to it then they're gonna you know they're gonna commit to it and they're gonna enjoy that as part of their program i know there's plenty of guys out there who are who are going through this hard sell so how did you how did you approach it and what were the kind of things that you implemented first to get that kind of immediate buy-in? Um, I, I, I think I had a bit of a sneaky advantage in that they were, they were coming into 
at the Leicester Tigers gym for, for, for a time. So they could see how professional it was. They understood that, you know, we, we have this whole department dedicated to strength and conditioning and our philosophy for, the, for this club is, you know, whatever it was, but it included, it included strength training. And, um, you, you know, they saw that, that they put two and two together and like, well, you know, these guys must know what they're talking about. You know, pe- people are paying them to do this job. So I, I guess we'll listen. And, uh, and, and, and probably, probably one of the biggest things um, I, I think we had to get over is that getting stronger would automatically mean you're going to be bigger and then you're not going to make weight and then, you know, that's going to be a disaster. I don't want to do any weights. I don't want to get any bigger because I'm already, you know, cutting four and a half kilos to try and make this weight class as it is. So so initially I, I you know, talked to them about, of course, if you were a strength power athlete, you have to address cross-sectional area and you have to address the neural characteristics of strength training. But, you know, if you're going to address cross-sectional area, then obviously you're going to get bigger. That's the nature of it and you're going to get heavier. So... Um, I don't think it's quite as black and white as this, but uh, I just sold neural adaptations to them. Okay, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna lift pretty heavy. We're not gonna do a lot of it because we're gonna work down we're, we're gonna work down this side of the equation, and we're gonna we're gonna leave development across sectional area alone. So you're not gonna put on too much weight. You're not gonna miss uh, your weight class, and everything's gonna be fine. And um, you know th- th- these 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 guys aren't stupid. That th- they can. Uh, they can rationalize things and, and, and they can work out whether that's something they want to commit to. And, you know, they committed to it and, uh, the feed, the feedback was great. It obviously it didn't happen overnight. It took, it took a year to, before you really saw, you know, these guys had developed their strength had developed and they were, they were feeling that transfer to their, to their wrestling, especially because of the, the time constraints of wrestling. You get a bit more time to apply force in wrestling than compared to striking. But they, they could really stop feeling that feeling that difference, and, and like you know, you know what it's like. As soon as an athlete feels a difference, that's it. You've got them. So, how did you approach that with the coaches? You said it was a bit harder with the coaches. Was it down, uh, the, yeah. down the same line? Yeah, d- down the same line, and um, because at the time the training was a little bit disjointed, it wasn't all under the same roof. There wasn't a head coach. Realistically, to to a point, we we just cracked on and. and and got on with it and um and one of the things i said to coaches look i don't want to substitute anything for strength training i'm not saying okay now oh no we're not doing any muay thai uh, we're just doing strength training i'm not trying to do that it's this is just to supplement your your technical and tactical work so don't think i'm trying to steal time off you all i want to do is just uh start them on this path and and over time um you know you, you you'll see the benefits of it so i just want to take a little um kind of step to the right and just talk a little bit about fight preparation. How would you, how did you go about uh, prepping your athletes in them kind of final stages before their, their kind of big night? Um, I, 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 you know, this crosses, this crosses uh, the spectrum of what we have to do in this uh, profession. But um, I, I, I believe uh, strength conditioning is relationship based. <laughs> You can be the smartest guy. You can have the best protocols. You can, you know, you could be in the best shape you want to be. But if you if you can't maintain a relationship with the guys you're training, it's it's 
almost a complete waste of your knowledge, experience, and, and work ethic or what have you. So so during during fight comes, we just try to have an open dialogue, just all the time, just have an open dialogue. And one of the things we always talked about, uh, and something that I uh, try to try to live by myself, is just having what 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 are our beliefs? What are we saying and what are we doing? They just have to be aligned at all times. We can't have this dissonance of saying one thing, but you know, when, when no one's watching, we're doing something else. And if all those things are in line in sport and I think in life, then you know, you're, you're, you're probably going to be as prepared as you can be. And especially in mixed martial arts, the, difference, the differences between winning and losing are so incredibly small. Sometimes you're going to be really well prepared and you're going to lose. And that, that's just the nature of the the level that the sport is at and the tiny differences between winning and losing. But if we're consistently aligned um, and we and uh, we consistently commit to to what we believe and what we say, then you know we're gonna we're gonna be in as good a position as we can be in. And you know so, sometimes things don't work out the, the the way you want them to work out, and sometimes and sometimes they do, and you do you do amazing things. So when you talk about kind of um, building relationships and actually having a personality, do you think that's something that kind of gets lost in maybe if it's like interns, it's all about kind of uh, the knowledge side of things, but the, the, the other side that we've been talking about there kind of gets lost? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard for interns. It's, it's, uh, you're caught in a catch-22 situation. So you know you have to build relationships. As soon as you build relationships, coaching staff think you're too close to players. <laughs> so you just get caught in this. And this this happens to me all the time. And, um, you know, my transition at the Reds from rehab coach to head of performance was, was really difficult. So rehab coach, I was spending eight days a week, 26 hours a day with, with individuals because uh, – you know, and you you can't do that and not form a relationship. You know, and then suddenly I'm head of performance where the head coach wants X, Y, and Z, and nine times out of ten it is is not technical that they want. They you know they they want someone to be a hard ass on the players, which you know is is a debatable concept. You know, at the best of times. Um, so you, you know you have to. You, we know you have to have relationships, otherwise people aren't going to buy into what you want to do. But but somehow, and I, I don't have an answer, and somehow you need to also maintain enough distance where, um, where certainly the perception is, is that you have distance and also in reality is that, you know, if you have to, you, you can, you, you're still a coach and they're still a player. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, but like I say, for interns, it's, it's a minefield. It's, it's, it's really tricky. Um, I, I don't necessarily have an answer uh, but I think I think one thing maybe is is being um, pro- probably probably working on themselves. So the more confident they are in themselves, the more confident they are in social situations and in the knowledge that they have. Um, you know, they're probably going to form better relationships just because people people can read insecurities in other people. So and, and rugby players are the best at it. Like it's <laughs> like. Uh, shark smelling blood so yeah. if, they're, if they're if they're happy with themselves they're confident they're confident with who they are and their knowledge and what have you you know that that's going to come across and people are people are going to respond to that and, and they're going to understand that without them having to tell everyone like I, I remember i just wanted everyone to know i knew what i was going on about 
and uh, you know that's I, I don't think that's the I don't think that's the way you know just looking inward a little bit I think will probably pay a little bit more for them. Mm, definitely, no, hundred percent. So just to um, I don't I don't want to take too much of your time up. Uh, just to finish off, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on personally? Um, so my Twitter handle is Fighter Strength, um, uh, which I'm on, on, on and off. Uh, my, my email address is uh, physicalperformance at iCloud.com. Um, I'm Facebook Ollie Richardson and, and, and what have you. There's not on Facebook. There's not much. Uh, there's not much SNC stuff on there, but um, there's, that's probably my just my personal site, really. But um, yeah, that's about it. There's no uh, there's, there's no blog or website going at the minute. Um, the, the three kids in a full time job seeing to that. <laughs> so, you, are you are you pretty active on Twitter? A bit of a uh, yeah, a bit, a bit. So, what I've recently started to do started doing is just uh, retweeting a lot of job opportunities because um, you know there seems to be a lot, especially the last six months a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunities cropping up and you know the more people the more people that get to see that you know the, the, the better really because I, I, I remember how hard it I remember how hard it is and uh, I feel very lucky about getting in, getting an internship at, at Leicester in the first place um, because that that was obviously that was a catalyst for everything I, i'd done a lot of work outside of that trying to trying to get myself into the best position so if the opportunity came i could i could take it and make the most of it um but i, I still feel pretty blessed and, and um and lucky that i did i got that opportunity uh, in 2004 and that that set me on the trajectory that i've been on now mm-hmm. cool well i'll let you go because um I'm sure there's something to do with three kids and the, and the job. So uh, I just Definitely. want to thank, thank you for your time again. Uh, really yeah, appreciate th- your insights. Yeah, th- thanks for having me on, mate. That was, uh, I enjoyed that. Absolute pleasure, mate. And I'll, uh, I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. All right, pal. See you, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 57 of the Pace of Performance podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Ollie. Just a different perspective was great. Uh, and someone involved in... Mixed Martial Arts, which we haven't had on the podcast before. So, massive thanks to Ollie, and massive thanks to today's sponsors, Val Performance and Simply Faster. So, as I mentioned in the intro, if you are interested in listening to the Pacey Performance webinar series number two with Ian McKeel, you can go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Ian. He's going to discuss uh, key areas of development, So foundational movements, his running model, uh, strength and power development and transfer to performance. He's going to discuss coaching and programming. So it's going to be a really exciting hour with Ian plus time for questions at the end. So I assure you there'll be more time for questions at the end than there were in the the Dan Baker uh, webinar. So really excited to bring you that. Thanks for listening to episode 57 with Ollie again would love your feedback and I will I'll speak to you soon